0: Our sermon today will be taken from John chapter 9, verse 1 to 7. This is the word of God. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in this world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sand. So he went and washed and came back seeing Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Emily. Let's pray. Father, you've made us for yourself. You've called us your image bearers, and our hearts are restless until we find its rest in you. Help us now, Lord God, see the deep truths of this passage. Be present with us here, Lord God. Let not the eloquence of man or the wisdom of My words be the strength and anchor of this sermon, but let your Spirit instead speak to us, breathe new life into us, so that our eyes might see and our ears might hear the true words of the true living God. Help us accept what might be hard to accept. Help us see your glory. Help us see the beauty, Lord God, of what you're trying to teach us here. And help us, Father, above all, to revel in Jesus Christ, who made us for him so that we might witness to him, even in the midst of illness, distress, suffering, and chaos. So, Father, help us in these ways. Amen. Friends, keep your uh, Bibles there in John chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. We're going to be in this passage today, going verse by verse, continuing on our series on the Gospel of John. Um, Remember, the theme of the Gospel of John is the light trying to overcome The darkness and ultimately succeeding and not only that the 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 darkness resisting the light the darkness is blind to the light the darkness is with all its strength and with all of its power trying to overcome this light but the light ends up overcoming the darkness and there's a singular light that is jesus himself as we've seen throughout this gospel as we've seen throughout these chapters as the unfolding chapters go by as we go verse by verse we've seen the climactic story anticipating the cross That people are more and more resisting christ that people are in more subtle ways and in more uh, stringent and more obvious ways resisting him with all of their strength all their might and jesus as we saw in chapter 8 just a brief reminder had just gone through another dialogue a debate and exchange with the pharisees and people who are trying to persecute him explicitly trying to kill him and it's going to just keep getting worse from here on out and this miracle here in chapter 9 verses 1 to 7 will set off another debate And Jesus will be absent from that debate. It will be the blind man who became healed against the Pharisees who are trying to prosecute Jesus. But this miracle, again, will be the basis and the starting point of that whole debate. And the irony of this is, as Jesus heals this blind man, as we're going to see by the end of this chapter, we're going to see that this blind man, even though he was physically blind, began to see truly and spiritually. Whereas the Pharisees, who were physically seeing, were actually blind deep inside in their natures, deep inside spiritually. So it becomes a reversal. The blind man became seeing, and the seeing Pharisees were actually blind deep inside. And Jesus will expose them through this miracle. So this miracle points way beyond itself. Jesus is not a mere healer. This miracle instead exposes the darkness that resides, the darkness that is in our own hearts, the darkness that tries to resist the light. And there's a lot to cover here, friends, today. There's going to be three points as we deal with really difficult topics. But I hope as you see this passage, as we deal through what seems to be difficult, what seems to be um, even dark, we might see the hope that Jesus Christ provides in the midst of suffering. So three points for today. First, what to focus on when we encounter suffering. Second, the purpose of suffering or the purpose of all things, which is the glory of God and suffering within that, the glory of God. And finally, third, the one who suffered for God's glory. And as I've prepared for this passage, um, I'm reminded of the late R.C. Sproul, who famously, friends, as he was studying, as he was preparing his sermons, he would put on his desk a little note, a slip, that would remind him, you are working to teach what the Word of God says, not what you want the Word of God to say. You're working and teaching what the Word of God says. You're to submit under it, not what you want the Word of God to say. And the Bible might teach things that are uncomfortable, but when we peer through it and we work through it, and we submit ourselves through it, there's a kind of hope, a kind of beauty, a kind of delight, a kind of joy that we're going to find in it. And here, friends, as we're going to see, look at verse 1 and 2. Jesus passed by and he saw a man blind from birth. The text is emphasizing this man has been born blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? The disciples immediately speculated that this man's sin was an outcome, I'm sorry, this man's suffering was an outcome of his own sin. The disciples ultimately assumed that because this man was suffering, because this man was blind, because this man was born this way, there must be a just punishment. Right? This must be a just punishment for his own sin. This is a natural tendency. And the disciples were partly right. The disciples were partly right to assume that ultimately sin is the reason suffering exists in the world. They knew their Bibles. They knew Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that sin is the cause for why there is suffering and misery in this world, including disease, including blindness. And the disciples went straight there. And Jesus is going to rebuke them for this in verse 3. But you see, friends, there's a difference between the ultimate cause for things and the different causes of suffering. Yes, the ultimate cause of suffering, the ultimate cause of why there's so much misery and brokenness in this world is because sin entered into the world and the world became broken because of it. But there's a difference between that and particular causes for suffering. The Bible lists at least three kinds of causes for suffering. Yes, sin is the ultimate cause, but there are different underlying causes of it. And we're told in this text not to focus on them, but there are at least three causes. First, there's a cause of suffering that, that, that is caused by your own wrongdoing. 1 Peter 2.20 says, For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? There's a kind of cause of suffering that is caused by your own sin, right? If you uh, run over a red light and you get a ticket and you get angry at God, you have no right to be angry at God because this was because of your own fault. You run through a red light, you get a ticket. These are normal consequences of your own sin. You break a law, you get punished, right? So there is a kind of suffering that is a direct result of your own wrongdoing. But there's also a kind of suffering that is due simply to the brokenness of the world, not due to a particular fault of your own. There's a kind of suffering that is due to you living in a fallen world, a kind of suffering that reminds you that this is not the world that you're supposed to be living in, that things are not the way it's supposed to be that things need to be made right. There's a kind of suffering, in other words, in the second kind, that is due to the brokenness of the world. You might be betrayed. Even when you've done everything right, you might be betrayed by someone that you love, betrayed by someone you've trusted. You might be suffering a disease, not because you've done anything wrong, but because simply uh, there are things that are uh, out of our control, things like blindness. Blindness. You might be persecuted for your faith, that though you're obedient unto the Lord, you were truly, genuinely seeking to live out His will, you remain persecuted. And ultimately, of course, there's death. Death is the great equalizer, and death is the greatest reminder that this world is not the world we're supposed to be living in. Death is a reminder that this world is deeply broken and in need of redemption. And the second kind of suffering... It's not due to your own particular cause or your own particular fault, right? This is simply a suffering that we must endure in this world, and it's the kind of suffering that we should expect, and Christians are not exempt from this. And finally, friends, there's a third kind of suffering that is even more mysterious. There's the mystery of Job. A kind of suffering not due to your own wrongdoing, a kind of suffering not due particularly to disease or death or betrayal, There's a kind of suffering that is simply mysterious. There's no discernible cause to it whatsoever. And that was the suffering of the book of Job. Job, who God calls as faithful, God calls as relatively righteous among the land, remain yet under the conditions of suffering. And you see, friends, different causes of suffering, whether it be your own wrongdoing, brokenness of the world, or the mystery of suffering in and of itself, like the book of Job, require different responses, right? And the disciples here uh, show a particularly insensitive kind of response. The disciples hear a kind of response that assumes immediately that if someone is in despair, someone is in suffering, someone is facing a kind of sickness, they ultimately assume it's the first kind of suffering. They must be suffering because they did something wrong. They must be suffering because they did something wrong. If you've read the book of Job, this is the tendency of Job's friends, right? Job suffered, and after the friends sat with him for a whole week, what did the friends say? What sin haven't you confessed? You must be hiding something from the Lord. What is it that you're hiding from us, Job? What kind of particular evil were you into that this might befall upon your family, that your family was taken away from you, your riches were taken away from you? What is it, Lord? What is it, Job? And Job, in despair, if you remember in Job chapter 16, says what? You miserable comforters. You miserable comforters. And that's what the disciples were doing here. They saw this blind man, and instead of focusing on the purpose of suffering, they focused on speculations. Jesus, we know our theology. We know that suffering and disease and affliction enter into the world through sin. So so it must be Jesus that this man or this man's parents had sinned, what is it? What was the cause of it? Tell us, you see. And there's a kind of um, self-righteousness to that too. We, we feel this in our own hearts. We do it all the time, don't we? Right? When we face another person's suffering, we like to think that that person is suffering and we're not because we've done something right in our lives. When we see someone in affliction, when we see someone in financial difficulty or we see someone in sickness, we see someone in despair, we see someone in dire straits, right? We think to ourselves, Lord, thank God that I'm not facing that. I must be doing something right. Right? We use, in other words, other people's misery to pat ourselves on the back. And there's a subtle form of self-righteousness in that. When we face other people's suffering, we focus and are fixated on ourselves and we say, huh? I guess I must be doing something right. And Calvin, just in this passage, he comments this way. If my brother meets with adversity, I instantly acknowledge the judgment of God. That's what we do immediately. Our quickest tendency is to puff up our pride. When my brother meets with adversity, I instantly acknowledge the judgment of God. But if God chastises me, if God afflicts me, with a heavier stroke, I wink at my sins. You see, when people suffer, we're quick to say, Ha, this was your own fault. But when we suffer, we're quick to complain. Lord, what sin have I done that I deserve this? And so the disciples are doing this, right? They're, the disciples are, are fixated upon uh, uh, speculating on causes of why this person is suffering and and we do that not merely, friends, when we see another person suffering, we speculate upon the causes of that, what must to what must be doing wrong, what is going on in their lives that they're secretly doing, that they're deserving this, what's, what's right about my life that I'm not suffering that way. We also do that when we suffer. We start to speculate upon causes. Lord, who's doing this to me? Lord, what have I done to deserve this? Lord, why is this happening to me? And either way, friends, as we've seen so far in the Gospel of John, here's what the darkness does to us. The darkness causes us to become self-absorbed. It curves us in on ourselves, whether in self-righteousness when we see the other people suffer, or in self-pity, in despair, just speculating and spiraling in. Lord, what? why? Why me? Why me? Why me? Why me? And that's just going to make it worse. Stop. Lift your head up. You see, Jesus is going to rebuke them. Jesus rebukes them. And Jesus is aware of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, right? Jesus knows that suffering enters into the world ultimately because of sin. He knows that, right? But Jesus does not remain there. Jesus does not speculate there. Jesus doesn't rebuke this man. Instead, he rebukes the disciples for what? For, For speculating. Jesus, in other words, does not speculate upon causes. He focuses on the purpose of suffering. Look at what he says there in verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, stop. Stop speculating that this is because of this man's sins. Stop punishing him. Stop speculating whether or not his parents have sinned. Think instead but what God might be doing right now. This man's suffering was for the purpose of the glory of God. In other words, Jesus is saying here, and this is our first point, right? Focus not, friends. When you encounter suffering, do not focus on yourself. Do not focus on the other person. Focus instead not Why, Lord? Why, Lord? Which spirals you in. Instead, focus, Lord, what are you trying to do here? What is it that you're trying to bring out of this? What is it? How does the situation that I find myself in point back to you? In other words, lift your head up, right? Lift your head up and see how, Lord, are you going to bring good out of this? How, Lord, are you going to bring glory to yourself out of this? How, Lord, are are you going to make this a scenario that witnesses, that displays your works. Resist self-absorption. Go to God. Point back to the glory of God, even in the midst of suffering. So that brings us to our second point: the purpose of suffering, and really the purpose of all things—the the, the glory of God—and. I know you guys might be feeling this. I'm feeling it too as I'm feeling the weight of this text. As I'm saying that, right, there's obviously a question that's going to lurk behind you. As I'm focusing right now, not on the causes of suffering, but on the purpose of suffering. Notice, friends, that this text does not shirk God away from the responsibility of suffering. Notice this text does not let God off the hook. Notice again what Jesus says. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be what? displayed in him, right? Not only that, he makes it kind of worse. Look at verse 4 and 5. He says this, We must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, night is coming, when no one can work, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Notice what Jesus is doing. Notice he's not just saying, all right, look, don't focus on the causes behind this suffering, don't focus on this man's sin, focus on how this glorifies God. Not only that, Jesus is saying, focus on not just the glory of God, the glory of myself. In two verses, Jesus is not merely saying the works of God might be displayed in this man's being healed, in this man's blindness. Jesus is saying he himself is the light of the world. Jesus is saying he himself is the glory of God. Jesus is saying the works of God are the works of himself. Right? The Greek word there for displaying is the word that comes with, with enlightening, the lightening of the light. It's kind of a redundancy here, right? So that the works of God might be enlightening us, so that Jesus himself might become the light of the world, right? Jesus identifying himself with God. In other words, in no uncertain terms, friends, Jesus is saying, This man was born blind for Jesus himself. This man was born blind. For the glory of Christ. I don't know about you. Um, maybe you're still exploring Christianity here. But at least one of the top three reasons why uh, people reject Christianity, why we might reject belief in God or belief in Christ, is what, is, what philosophers call the problem of evil. The problem of evil asks why... Is there evil in the world if there is a good, powerful, and wise God? In other words, if God is all-knowing, if God is all-powerful, if God is all-loving, all-good, why is there so much suffering and evil in the world? And maybe that's kind of a motivation of the disciples too, right? You see, if this man's suffering, if this man's blindness was a just punishment for his sin, then God is off the hook. Right? Maybe the disciples were providing a kind of defense, a kind of apologetic for God's glory and God's justice. All right, Lord, we know that suffering comes from sin, so this person must be blind because of sin because God must be kept off the hook. We might be tempted to keep God off the hook, in other words, of evil and suffering. And that's a typical response to the problem of evil, right? There's a typical response that says God is not in control. God is not behind suffering, God is not behind evil. God is not responsible in any way. In fact, God is not in control. God has left things to their own devices and God merely sits back and watches and merely could not do anything about it at all, right? And Jesus might have commended the disciples for that and let God off the hook, but friends, verse 3 to 5 forbids us to take that route. Jesus does not get God off the hook he puts himself right on the hook. Jesus does not get God off the responsibility of evil. Jesus does not say, friends, that God has nothing to do with this. Jesus, instead of saying, no, this happened so that you might see my works displayed. This happened for you to see my works displayed, right? And, let me just zoom out before we zoom in back into um, this particular blind man's um, healing here. Let me zoom out real quick here to talk about how God didn't just ordain this person's suffering for his glory, right? In fact, this person's suffering, this person's blindness for his glory is merely paradigmatic or a small example of what God does in everything else. God, in other words, has created all things, not because he's lonely, not because he needed anything, but somehow he created all things for the sake of his own glory, of sharing it so that people might behold it and so that people might have joy in it. And this is found, for example, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, which is found in here on the screen, right? Look at what he says there. He says that all things were created through him, through the Son, and for him, for the Son. Not only that, it says at the end there that in everything the Son might become preeminent. What is the chief end of creation? The chief end of creation, as Colossians 1.15-18 says, which is, by the way, an early hymn within the Christian church, Colossians 1.15-18 says that everything was made to become a theater for God's glory. Everything was made to point through Him and to Him and for Him. Not only that, everything was made so that He might become preeminent, This text is emphatic. So this man's suffering and this particular uh, miracle that will happen for the works of Jesus to be displayed is one paradigmatic example of what is in general true. All of creation was made for the glory of God. And some of you are already wondering, right? Some of you are already questioning here uh, what John Piper made famous, uh, which was Brad Pitt's objection against uh, the belief in God. Brad Pitt apparently in an interview said, why do I not believe in Christianity? Why do I not believe in God? He says, when I grew up, when I read the Bible, when I heard sermons, I kept seeing this egomaniacal God telling people to praise Him. This egomaniacal God telling people to seek His glory, to seek His face. And Brad Pitt is saying, what kind of God does that? He's probably thinking about texts like this. God created all things to him and for him. He's probably thinking about texts like John 9, right? A man born blind for the sake of his glory. How do I defend that? Or how, do I, how, how, do I, how do I discuss this? How do, well, how do we make sense of a text that says illnesses were actually purposed for the glory of God? Well, friends, I want us to see that this is not as counterintuitive as this might seem. This, actually, you know this deep down in your heart. Some mundane examples, all right? And before we get to some, some deeper examples, perhaps. You know, we are naturally, instinctively resistant of people who are self-absorbed. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever walked into a, a cocktail party or a dinner party? Have you Have ever just met someone and you just kept thinking, I just can't stand this conversation because somehow every topic becomes about them, right? You're talking about coffee, and I don't know, you're talking about coffee that came from um, Africa or something, and it says, yeah, well, I had a coffee once. I had a coffee better than that. Well, you see, you know, you might know something about coffee, but I know coffee better than you, you see? It's become about them. Or maybe, you know, you're churhating with someone, right? You know, like, oh, I just broke up with someone right now, you know? You know, I had a breakup once. It was much worse than yours. Yeah. You know, somehow everything everything becomes about them, right? They're, they're all, it's almost as if they're just absorbing things right back into themselves. You see, we cannot stand pride. Why? You know, if I walked into this room and the sermon started off with saying, "Aren't I just a great person?" You know, you know, l- look around. You know, this is great. Look at this. There's there's something instinctive to you and say there's something wrong here (laughs) there's something there's something in other words there's something not proper you're not functioning the way you're supposed to be and notice this you're not just sensitive about it with other people right you're sensitive about it in yourself too did you notice that um when you're proud right your pride and your happiness that you found in your pride crashes immediately when someone that you think is better than you walks into the room you take pride in your intellect right Someone smarter than you uh, uh, walks into the room. You're gonna think, "Oh, I'm, I'm gonna be found out. I'm, I'm gonna be found out as a fraud. I'm not as smart as people think. They got smarter than me." Right? When you when you're insecure about your your looks, for example, right? Someone prettier or better looking than you, you think, uh, comes into the room, and suddenly your pride and your happiness kind of crashes down, right? Because pride takes delight not in the thing itself, whether it be beauty or finances or intellect. Pride takes delight in comparing yourself to other people. And you're thinking not in your own beauty, you're thinking of beauty as more beautiful than that other person. And when some other person that you think is more beautiful than yourself, your whole world collapses. And you might reassure yourself in this way. And I was watching Jumanji. Uh funny movie in a lot of ways. And and notice the blonde girl. Um, when she finds herself in detention and she finds herself in an anxiety, she says, "You're still so beautiful. You're still so beautiful. You're still the prettiest girl in the room." Right? That's what she said to comfort herself, right? But have you noticed that doesn't work? Have you noticed that when you try to comfort yourself in your own pride, there's something deep inside of you that says, "But someone else is better." You know how you don't measure up. You know your own faults. In other words, when you spiral in on yourself, your world just crashes. That's why there's so many articles in in every possible um, journalistic avenue that says that social media is the number one cause for anxiety. Because you're always comparing, 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 comparing. It never ends, right? And that's why when someone comes to you, when you're suffering, maybe it's because of financial reversal and that someone says, and makes it about themselves, well, I had a financial reversal one. It was worse than yours, right? This comparison makes you even worse. In other words, there's something about self-absorption that we notice in other people and we notice in ourselves that we instinctively hate. Why, friends? Because the Bible says in Genesis one 26-28, you are made in the image of God. You're an image bearer. You know what images do? You know what mirrors do? They are meant to reflect something else. You were made, friends, for something outside of yourself. By definition, if you're made as an image bearer of God, you were made, friends, to point to something greater. Your identity could only be settled, could only be at rest when you and your identity is fixed on something absolutely unchangeable, something outside of yourself, something, friends, that you were made for. God. You are made to reflect God. You are made to praise God. You are made to image God. And know what's the opposite of the obnoxious, self-absorbed person that we often become? You know what makes a good leader? A good leader, friends, is not someone who leads by pointing to themselves. A good leader is a leader who points by example, who points to something greater than themselves. So a great leader, friends, is not someone that says, "Look at me." A great leader says, "Look at something." greater than us do you believe in the vision and mission of this company do you believe in the vision of this church do you believe in the vision of god a good leader someone an attractive personality not even a leader an attractive personality is someone that can draw you in not to themselves but to something greater lift up your eyes to this thing that we're living for You were made to image God. So God is not being selfish when he asks you to praise him. And by the way, God's perfect. The perfect being only wants what's perfect. And God is by himself perfect. So a perfect being must want himself. Anyway, um, you were made for perfection. You were made to reflect that, right? You know this intuitively. So when God says, praise him, glorify him, he's not being selfish. He's actually seeking your joy. Lift your eyes off these changeable things. Lift your loves off what is mutable. Fix your eyes. Fix your loves on the unchangeable God himself. So, friends, what is the, what is the ultimate answer? If that's what creation is for, if Adam and Eve were created to glorify God, and, and, and ultimately everything was made to glorify God, let me just zoom back in now, not just to creation in general, but let me zoom back in to suffering. Right? I've talked about the problem of evil, how there are some bad answers to it. And notice, Jesus doesn't go there. Jesus doesn't say, I'm not in control. I didn't know this person was blind. No, Jesus owns it. Jesus says, hey, focus on this. Look at how this person will be sent soon enough. Look at how this person will be recorded in this gospel to defend him even in his absence. That's integrity, by the way, right? Integrity is not puffing yourself up so people could see. Integrity is defending Christ and working out his law even when nobody's watching, and that's going to be coming in the next sermon. But notice right now, right? Suffering, no less than creation, was provided, ordained, predestined for the glory of God so that you might become a joyous people. The problem of evil is not answered by saying that God is not in control, which, by the way, would be absolutely terrifying. Because if God was not in control of your suffering, then it's purposeless, and it's up to you to make it purposeful. That should paralyze you, right? Instead, suffering exists for the glory of God. Now, theologians have referred to this answer called uh, to the problem of evil by appealing to the glory of God by a particular defense in a Latin term called Felix Culpa. It's a fancy Latin term, Felix Culpa. Um, Felix means blessed or happy, or um, fortunate, that's what it means in um, Latin. And culpa means fall, or guilt, or fault. So theologians, ever since uh, at least the third century, have referred to an answer to the problem of evil based on scripture called Felix which says that um, there's a kind of good that God brings out of evil. There's a kind of good that God brings out of evil that is better than good in and of itself when there was no evil. In other words, according to this defense, right, there's a kind of blessed fall. There's a kind of blessed fault where Augustine says this, God judged it better to bring good out of evil than not to permit any evil to exist. Augustine said that in the 4th century. cited by Aquinas in the 12th century, cited by Calvin in the 16th century, and cited by Keller in the 21st century, Timothy Keller. Where Keller says... God turns evil back upon itself. God will allow evil only to the degree that it brings about the very opposite of what it intends. See, biblically speaking, friends, there's a kind of glory that we see in God, in God's redemption, right, that we would not have seen if Adam and Eve had never fallen. You see, if Adam and Eve had never fallen, we would have seen the the goodness of God, we would have seen the justice of God, but we would have never seen other attributes like grace, like mercy, like wrath. you see, friends, there's something inherently beautiful about bringing good out of evil. There's something, in other words, inherently beautiful about redemption. Such that somehow in Revelation 5, the angels could sing a new song to the glory of God, which is inherently a paradox. How can God, who's eternally glorious, be somehow more glorified in a story that says that the Lamb was slain Sinners and the sinners redeemed showed a glimpse of God's glory that we would have never seen in the first place, and that's why the story of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption. Right, creation, fall, redemption. And again, this is not as counterintuitive as you might think. Um, every good story assumes this narrative. You notice in English classes, they tell you every plot has at least three aspects a setting a rising tension and a resolution you know i was reading uh, a review uh on, on a netflix series called The defenders right have you, have you guys heard about the defenders all right you don't have to raise your hands anyway i, I love comic book stories right uh i watched the flash kind of religiously but anyway um then the defenders on netflix right um it's a story it's 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 a marvel series based on a comic book story right um if the avengers are supposed to be kind of the cosmic heroes right the defenders are supposed to be kind of the local heroes of new york city according to marvel right and the defenders are made up of um five heroes right daredevil um jessica jones luke cage um the man with the iron fist and the punisher right And there was a particular review. And if you notice, by the way, if you just look up on Rotten Tomatoes or any other review website, right? Four out of the five had pretty great reviews. Four out of the five had pretty great reviews. Daredevil, great reviews. Jessica Jones, great reviews. The Punisher, pretty good reviews. Luke Cage, great reviews. There's one, The Man with the Iron Fist, 27% on Rotten Tomatoes. People are like wondering, what happened, right? And there was this particular review, it was pretty, pretty insightful, I forgot where it's from, but this review basically said, think about why the man with the iron fist simply did not make the cut, right? Compare the man with the iron fist with the other four. What are the other four premised upon? Daredevil was a recovering Catholic trying to recover from guilt. There was a trauma of guilt that he was trying to overcome, Right? The series really dwell on that. Jessica Jones was recovering from sexual abuse. Her superpowers were predicated upon that. Luke Cage recovering from injustice, of of living in poverty, of, of racial injustice, right? The Punisher recovering from PTSD of war and losing his family. The Man with the Iron Fist, a rich kid feeling lonely. There's something about it that simply doesn't work. And the review says this. One simply could not trust a hero with no suffering. One simply could not trust a hero with no suffering. Nobody cares about this person because nobody empathizes with his suffering. Notice the story of these four superheroes are so great because they were recovering from a particular trauma, a particular fall. Oh, blessed fall. In my sins, the glory of God revealed. I glory in my sins forgiven, as a contemporary song once said. My stories of fall are stories of grace to recall. You see, friends, this man was suffering for the glory of God. And you shouldn't, you shouldn't feel that as something scary. You should find in that a measure of hope. But you might think to yourself right now, all right, Gray, I get it. This sounds somewhat compelling, but this doesn't eradicate the pain, right? This man was still born blind. And yes, he's about to be healed, right? This man was still born blind, but yes, he's about to be healed, but he had to suffer this way. Great, I'm still suffering, all right? There's still so much suffering. And I don't want to say that suffering is actually good. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm trying to say that God ordained suffering for a greater good, which is his glory, which is the very thing that gives you joy, right? Remember, friends, the moment we're insulting in but what about me? What about my pain? Look up. Hey. This blind man's suffering points to someone else who suffered greater for the glory of God than he or you and I ever will. This blind man's suffering, his blessed fault, his blessed misery, points to another blessed misery. Friends, your suffering, this blind man's suffering, every Christian's suffering is in solidarity with the innocent, sinless one who suffered truly for the glory of God. Which brings me to my third and final point. The one who suffered for God's glory, right? If you might be thinking right now, really, this is, this is all for God's glory? What about me? What about me? Listen, Jesus Christ suffered and died a greater suffering than us so that you and I would experience joy and see God's glory in a way never seen before. In the cross, right, God's justice, God's grace, God's wisdom, every magnificent facet of the diamond of God's glory is revealed and displayed. And that's your greatest glory. That's why you're a Christian here, by the way, right? And you might think right now, okay, didn't Jesus die for me? Right? There's a song, for example, that says, um, crucified, laid behind a stone. You live to die, rejected and alone. Like a rose trampled on the ground. You took the fall and thought of me above all. That song is partly only true. You see, friends, Jesus' death was, yes, true because of his love for you. But there's another reason that Jesus' death was for that is more primary than his love for you. Turn your Bibles really quickly to Romans 3, verses 23 to 26. I want you all to see this with me. Look at what Paul is saying here, 23 to 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or substitution by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why was Jesus, in other words, put up as a substitute, put up to die? Look at what it says. This was to show God's righteousness. And again in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness. Righteousness. In other words, what was at stake at the cross, friends? What was at stake at the cross? At stake at the cross was the very glory and righteousness of God. At stake at the cross is the vindication of a God who would justify sinners. At stake at the cross is a vindication of a God who has mercy on people who don't deserve it, right? In the past five weeks or so, we've looked at, for example, the story of Jacob, one of the saints of the Old Testament, right? What was the story of Jacob about? Was it about a triumphant hero? Was it about a courageous truth teller? The story of Jacob was about a deceitful coward who broke up a whole family, stole his brother's rights, and was a vain person. You see, but Jacob was saved. Could you imagine the words of Esau? Lord, what kind of God are you who would rescue a deceitful person like Jacob? What kind of glory do you have? How can I trust you, Lord, if someone as deceitful as Jacob could end up in heaven? Lord, what kind of righteousness do you claim to possess if someone like this could end up living free? Right? What kind of God are you? Do you feel that? You know, in C.S. Lewis' novel, The Great Divorce, uh, chapter 3, he talks about a, You know, The Great Divorce is is a novel about, uh, a fictitious novel about people in hell meeting people in heaven. And people in hell were called ghosts. People in heaven were called spirits, right? And this particular ghost from hell ends up arriving in heaven. And the point of it is, people in hell don't want to be in heaven. This ghost ends up coming to heaven and meets a spirit who he once knew back on earth and this spirit killed a mutual friend of them his name was Jack so the ghost came up to the spirit came up to heaven looking around pretty impressed at first and then saw this spirit who murdered his friend alright come up to him first thing he said to the spirit what are you doing here the spirit said it's okay the ghost said no it's not what are you you talking about you killed jack spirit said you shouldn't focus on that it's all okay the ghost said no what do you mean you it's, it's okay you killed jack he's dead you're a murderer and the spirit said he's not dead he's here it's okay and he says, no, I can't be in a place where people like you get in. What will people say of me? I can't be seen around murderers like you. You don't, you don't have any right to be here. You know what the Spirit said? I don't. Mm-hmm. But neither do you. It's okay. Come. Come to me. Come. Let me guide you. Uh, let me serve you. The ghost said again, no, I can't be seen around the legs of you. And he left heaven went back to hell because he would prefer to be in a place where his pride could still be cherished you see friends the inherent objection of this particular ghost this particular fictitious person in hell is this here's one who thinks he's better than others here's one who thinks how can a god a righteous god let sinners in into heaven so freely so kindly when I know the sense of that person. And friends, when you think that, think immediately about yourself. What kind of God would let in sinners as vile, as dirty as you and me into a holy place like his sanctuary in heaven? What kind of God does that? How can he be a righteous God? The answer, friends, as we saw in Romans 2, 3, 23, 26, he does it and is able to be just in doing it because someone else took your place. Your punishment was taken upon someone else. Your punishment was put upon Christ, the innocent one, and there a glorious substitution takes place where his righteousness becomes yours And he sends his spirit to clean you, to change you from the inside out, to make you more and more like him. And he would suffer hell and the blood of the cross for us. That's the glory of the gospel. He loved you in the cross because the cross was for God's own glory. Now look back now in John 9. We're going to close with this. Look at what Jesus says here. look at what happens. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And we're going to see in this text, he didn't just see with his physical eyes, he saw truly with the eyes of his new nature. You see, Life didn't, is not about to go well for this blind man. He is about to be persecuted, and he's about to be shamed and mocked in the next thirty verses. But you see, in this act, friends, he was saved so that he might witness to Jesus. This man was healed, and notice he was baptized in the fountain. We didn't know whether or not he was dipped, whether or not he was immersed. He was washed. He was washed, and he came back out seeing. And life didn't go all jolly for him at this point. It's not as if everything else became all prosperous. No, he had to fight, and he will suffer even greater shame. But here's the point, friends. If you today here stand cleansed by the blood of the fountain of Jesus Christ, this is your purpose. Rejoice in it. Witness to him. You see the author doesn't point to anything else about this particular pool this particular fountain it doesn't say where it was really it doesn't really say about why it was built or its particular architecture it merely says that the pool's name means sent you are sent as you go now seeing the glory of jesus as you are saved friends go now and as you suffer Notice that you're sent just as the blind man was. You have been saved from a blessed fall because evil has now turned itself, uh, has been turned against itself. Evil will now bring the opposite of what it intends. Your sin becomes a story of the glory of God's grace. Your continuous dependence on, on God's grace and his strength as a witness to your weakness points greater to his preeminence. You will now be sent into a world that will continue to misunderstand you will continue to revile you, will continue to persecute you. But you will go into this world, not alone. You will go into this world with a clean heart, clean hands, clean conscience, witnessing to the one that will give you joy. Go be sent and live according to your purpose. Go be cleansed in the water that is his blood. Let us pray.